0: Last week I got through point one and point number two. Point number two was about the objective and exclusive absolute truth that the early church stood for without compromise. And I went through the first point of pluralism and diversity of religious beliefs that the early church would not tolerate pluralism. They had the objective truth and they made no excuses for it. But I didn't get to point B, because point B segues into point three. And that is point B under number two was apologetics and a defense of your faith. That would be under objective, exclusive, absolute truth. Now what is apologetics? Apologetics is that science of defending what you believe. Apologetics is an important part of defending your faith. You're defending objective truth. And this is where it's going to be one of those things. In my estimation, I'm going to be pushing pretty hard on all of you today about this. So you understand now what apologetics is. Now my point, number three, is the perfect marriage of the supernatural and theology that existed in the early church. And there seems to be a disconnect in the modern day church between these two things, the supernatural and theology. And you might think of it this way. You might know of churches that are focused more on the deep study of the word or highbrow sermons. But they don't have any power of God in them. It's it's one of those generic observations that we sometimes make about churches. That if if they're uh, deep into scholarly things, they're very shallow in spiritual things. I don't know why we think like this. And I think that's an oversimplification. But it's something that we have commonly come to think of. As a matter of fact, there has been a criticism commonly existing in Christianity, among Christian people, that anybody who goes to an institution of higher learning for the Bible, they go to what we call it a seminary, and come on, people, you know what I'm talking about. What, what is the critical uh, thought about ministers who go to seminaries? Yeah, everybody thinks, oh, you. so you went to a cemetery, huh? Because they associate higher learning with being spiritually dead. So if you go to a cemetery, you die spiritually. And you come out and you know everything, but you have no power of God. Now, people may know of instances where that has happened. And so they may think they're making a, a, a legitimate observation and claim. But the early church had a perfect marriage of good theology and the supernatural moving in its midst. That's what we want to strive for. And on the other hand, if you, if you flip that example over and, and you go to these churches that maybe they're, they're more demonstrative, uh, they, they like to believe that they really let the Holy Spirit move. And I mean, people are running to and fro and running on, rolling on the floor and frothing at the mouth. And, uh, but the, they, they're, they're, they're only about an inch deep in the word. They don't know anything about theology, but they've got the power of God. Now somewhere between these two extremes has to exist a healthy church that has a good handle on their theology and they also have a good handle on the presence of God and the power of God in their midst. What's wrong with that? The two are not mutually exclusive. We can study the word. We can go deeper in the word. And we can still have the power of God in our midst. One should not exclude the other. I kind of think that the enemy, you know who I'm talking about? old oh, Slewfoot. I think he kind of gets in and messes things up sometimes. He's probably partly responsible for intellectual churches drying up or for spiritual churches having no concept what they believe in. I think he is responsible for causing havoc in the church and it wouldn't be beyond him to contribute to that confusion. Now let me read what this commentator, as as I did in the style of this message last week, what this commentator has to say on this subject matter and then I will key off of that. He says, in an age where specialization has hit evangelism so much that we rarely find churches that emphasize healing, also emphasizing apologetics, Acts presents a church where the same individuals performed healings and preached highly reasoned apologetic messages. Now the comment that I just read is to me startling. And I'm going to repeat this one phrase. We rarely find churches that emphasize healing also emphasizing apologetics. And I have to say, I think that's probably a legitimate observation, but I have to challenge that and say, why? Why does that have to be? Why do we have to have churches that are more focused on apologetics that really don't want to see the power and the move of the Holy Spirit. We're too smart for it? We're too educated for it? Or churches that like to party in the power who don't care anything about studying the Word? We don't care. Like one ambitious young man that went to college one time blurted out he was a little angry at his professor for pushing them on on, uh, understanding the Bible and rightly dividing the word of truth and bringing him to account for what the Bible says as compared to what he rehearsed and what he practiced, what he believed in. He finally got exasperated. He said, I don't care what the Bible says, we want the Spirit to have his way. You ought to care what the Bible says, and you ought to let the Spirit have his way, but you can't say, I don't care about one, because the two are incompatible. And then on the flip side is those who emphasize apologetics and theology, and they dry up from the lack of power of God in their midst. Why do churches who are high on the power of God minimalize the intellectual academic side of their faith? And, and I told you about the, the, the joke. It's not a joke, but it's uh, of substituting cemetery for seminary. My Sunday school teacher, the man that, that I grew up under, he considers himself quite a Bible scholar. He loves God with all his heart. He studies his Bible very much, but he's not a very good scholar. I promise you. <laughs> but he thinks he is. And he's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. So when I go back to my hometown and I visit with this man, all he wants to do is just try and demonstrate how much he knows about the Bible, which just between you and me, it demonstrates how much he doesn't know every time he does this. And I love the man dearly, and I appreciate what he did in teaching Sunday school class and doing his very best. But every time I meet with him, He has to make that comment about these preachers that go to cemeteries to get their degree every time. And I challenged him last time. I said, what is it you have against higher learning about the Bible? What is it you have against people going to school to better understand God's word? And he never gives me a good answer. He just conveniently forgets the argument. Next time we meet, he wants to talk about preachers that go to cemeteries. Now some people, his needle is stuck. There's nothing wrong with understanding more about God's work. The Bible you hold in your hand is so complex. The languages it was written in, we don't understand very well. We are taking our finest scholars in the world to better understand Hebrew and to better understand Greek and trying to get into the Greek of that day which is different from the Greek of this day and understand the grammar Of those languages and what they were really trying to say. And we've got scholars trying their best to help us understand what was it really saying. And they've got these other little people running around criticizing them for giving their best effort to understand God's word. I want to understand God's word, don't you? It'd be a tragedy for us to possess God's word and not really know what it's saying. It'd be a tragedy for us to think that whatever they translated into English, that that's the final word. That it doesn't get any better than that. That whatever it says, you know, the translations are being refined all the time. They're getting better all the time. They're casting light on on scriptures that we did not understand even a 100 years ago. It's getting better all the time. I think we ought to applaud that. We ought to celebrate that. That's a good thing. But we can't lose the power in the process. There is the story that is told about the young man that went to college, Bible college. Unfortunately, this is kind of the other side of the flip side of the coin. He came home and, and uh, his mother was so excited to get to see her son that, and she had a testimony for him. She said, son, I've been waiting to see you. I'm so excited. I just wanted to tell you that I was reading in Scripture about whenever it said they laid their hands on the sick and, and, and they recovered. And she said, in faith believing, I just laid my hands on my own head and I prayed and God healed me. And and the son said, uh, well, mother, we just studied in in college that that particular passage of scripture was not found in all the manuscripts it was probably a, not a part of the original inspired scripture it was probably added by copyists later it's not a legitimate part of the Bible and, and so he's trying to let her down you know that that's, that's not really what the Bible says, that's what some copyist inserted. So then she began to have a hallelujah fit, and he said, what are you you shouting for? She says, if God can do that with the uninspired part, think what he can do with the inspired part. (laughs) Well, we've always got this tension between the intellect and the spirit. But we want to marry them together successfully like the early church did. I have deep concerns about the modern day church. Uh, Apologetics, this legal term. Let me me take you to Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15. He says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense. Now, Mentally underscore that word, or if you have paper in front of you, underscore it, or just somehow, don't forget this. Be prepared to make a defense. That Greek word, apologia, apologetics, is what Peter is saying to you, to me, to his readers. Always be prepared to make a defense. Apologetics. To everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and with reverence. There it is. To make a defense, to enter into this science of apologetics. Now, it's the art of putting together a skillful defense for what you believe in. Who wants to hire a defense attorney who builds a weak case or no case at all for you? Do you want that? You don't want an incompetent attorney. You want somebody there who is skilled enough to present a case that is going to benefit you. You want that. You want a strong defense. You need that strong defense in your faith as well. So when Peter said you ought to be highly skilled enough to defend your faith, that's where I said I'm going to get in your face today. I'm assuming That most of you here today believe in the fundamental things that I believe in that we all ought to believe in. I'm assuming you believe there is a God. I'm assuming you believe that the Bible is the inspired, infallible word of God. There's a lot of things I'm assuming you believe. But it's not enough to simply know what you believe Peter's saying, I'm telling you, you better know why you believe it. You know how important this is? I know a lot of you are going to walk from this building today and you're going to say, I know what I believe and that's all I care about. I don't have to defend it. Well, let me tell you something. Just that basic level of I just know what I believe is not good enough. You know why? Because let's look how this applies in, in other areas. In other words, You say, I believe there is a God because believing in that appeals to me. I like the idea. It comforts me to think there is a God. Peter said, be prepared to give a defense for your faith to anybody who challenges you. So somebody comes up to you and says, prove to me there's a God. Tell me why you believe in a God. And your comeback is just because it appeals to me to believe that. That's not good enough. This this basis that it appeals to me, like Scientology just appeals to Tom Cruise. He can't defend it. It's ridiculous, but it appeals to him. He likes it. Hinduism appeals to Miley Cyrus. She can't defend it, but she likes it. Buddhism appeals to Richard Gere. Islam appeals to Britney Spears. It appeals... To Michael Jackson when he was alive atheism appeals to Brad Pitt Howard Stern Jack Nicholson Angelina Jolie Mark Zuckerberg Bill Gates it appeals to them but they have no case to prove it they just like it and you want to be in the same company as these people that say my Christian faith why do I believe it it just appeals to me well that's good enough for these people and they believe nonsense So Peter is getting in your face and he's saying, you know, it's not enough just to know what you believe. He said, I'm telling you, if you're going to develop as a man of God, as a woman of God, you had better know why you believe. And you had better be prepared to give a defense of your faith to anybody who asks you. Sounds like it's going to be a lot of work. (laughs) Yes, it is. We don't want lazy Christians. We want people apply themselves to understand why they believe, not just what you believe. And Christianity can bear the weight of your deepest scrutiny. It's not just another choice on the world's buffet table. It is head and shoulders above every religion. Jesus made very exclusive claims. Jesus did not come down here and said, I'm one of many ways to God. He made a shocking claim. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Any man who comes to the Father has to go through me. Now, if you're going to believe that, and somebody challenges you, and they say, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to God? You say, yes. And they say, why can't somebody find their way to God through the writings of Confucius? What are you going to say? You're going to say, I don't know. It just appeals to me. Don't you care to know that what you believe in is authentic? Don't you care to have the satisfaction of what you're believing in is not some fairy tale? Does that matter to you? It matters to me. I don't want to be taken for a fool. I want to know what I believe in is legitimate. I want to know that. Let me ask you people. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? How can you convince anybody else that the evidence clearly and powerfully leads us to that conclusion? I believe it because I was taught to believe that and then I transferred over to it makes sense to believe it because I've studied the evidence and the evidence points towards that. That's why I believe it. And I feel comfortable in my faith. If somebody says that's a bunch of nonsense, I can come back with them and say it's not nonsense. Let's consider the evidence. Go to Josh McDowell's book, his, his classic book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Get that. Put it in your library. It's hard reading. Yes, it is. We're not talking about fairy tale stuff here. It's hard reading, but it is, it is a, a, a tool in your tool bag that you can always go back to. Why do I believe in the resurrection? What is the evidence for it? And this young man, uh, Josh uh, McDowell, as a young man doing his, his uh, doctorate work, put this book together as, as his doctoral thesis. This was the work that he produced, that it's evidence that would stand up in a courtroom to come to the conclusion Jesus rose from the dead. Don't you think you need that in your life? I mean, you don't have to memorize the book. Just read it and become comforted in your faith. Keep it as a resource. Somebody, you might be able to lead them to God because you're prepared for them. Do you believe Jesus is the only way to the Father? How do you defend your faith if they say, No, I believe people can find their way to God and their way to heaven through a number of different ways? You might not be comfortable with that idea, but if you don't have any kind of an argument for it, what are you going to do? You're just going to say, Well, to each his own. Do you believe that the Bible is the only divinely inspired and infallible word of God? How do you defend that? If you do, how do you defend that to those who say, well, we believe the Koran can lead us to God? How do you defend it to those who say, what about the Book of Mormon? Is it not also the word of God? How about those who say, well, what about the writings of Confucius? Can't we find our way to God through those writings, the writings of of a, a, a wise and witty man? Do you have answers for this? Do you truly believe Jesus Christ is coming again to rule and reign on this earth? Do you truly believe he's coming back to dismantle every government in the entire world and he's going to reign solely and supremely over all the earth? He's going to depose every king, every president, every dictator and bring them into subjection to himself? If you do believe that, how are you going to defend that so it doesn't make you sound like you're believing in some kind of a weird fairy tale? I mean, if you would stand up before this world, before your friends, before your family, before your acquaintances, your circle of acquaintances, and you would just say to them, I believe Jesus is coming back and he's going to reign from Jerusalem, he's going to reign the entire world, and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess Jesus Christ is Lord. If you say you believe that, are you prepared for the business they're going to give you? First of all, they're going to laugh, they're going to scoff at you. They're going to ridicule you. They're going to, they're going to write you off. That, that's just, that's nonsense. That's a bunch of fairy tales. Then they'll attack the validity of the Bible, and you're going to stand there and you say, well, well, I sure wish I had a comeback because I kind of like believing this. Peter said, be prepared to make a defense for your faith because, see, the early church did. The early church married together the power of God with their theology very well. They could heal people and then stand up and give a, a defense in their sermon, that would stop their critics. They were prepared to go both ways. Do you believe the Bible is the ultimate authority on morals? Do you believe the Bible has the final and authoritative word on issues like homosexuality, drunkenness, adultery, and the sanctity of life? Do you defend that to those who dismiss the Bible as merely the outdated writings of men from another era, another culture? Because a lot of people today believe that. They think this is just the, the Bible, just a bunch of uh, outdated writings from another culture in another era. It doesn't apply today. They truly, truly believe that. They don't know why they believe it because it appeals to them. But if you believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God, the ultimate authority on moral conduct for human beings, and somebody says, I don't believe that, are you prepared to defend why you believe? The Bible is trustworthy and the infallible Word of God. See, I'm challenging you to grow. I'm challenging you to move out from that place of complacency that we have become so satisfied as Christians, just saying, I just know what I believe. Don't bother me with the details. Into that area where you have a command of your faith. You can defend it to anybody who questions what you believe. Point number four the early church, concerning missions and growth. And this commentator says, in an age when many churches spend so much time and money and energy on self-preservation, do you hear what I said? We spend so much on self-preservation and improvement. Acts presents churches that released their most capable people for reaching the lost. The second thing he says, in an age where many churches look to excellence in techniques to bring success, Acts presents a church that depended on the Holy Spirit and gave top priority to prayer and moral purity. Now, there's two issues addressed in the above quotes. They're very applicable to West Side. So I challenge you to listen closely. First is the issue of evangelism. Evangelism is the duty and the calling of the church. That's what the book of Acts is about. Evangelism empowered by the Holy Spirit. So when we read Acts, we're reading the roadmap for the church. We're supposed to be evangelizing. We're supposed to be reaching the lost. But this man suggests there's too many churches that are stuck in the mode of survival. Self-maintenance, self-preservation, just improvement here. And I, I want to tell you something that we have spent thousands of of dollars, and multiplied thousands of dollars here at Westside since I've been pastor, just trying to get the church back in a shape that we feel honors God. We raised $300,000 on our first campaign, spent it all on upgrades. Raised another $80,000 on the next campaign, spent it all on upgrades. Going into a third phase, spending all on upgrades. We're going to know half a million dollars, we're pouring into this. I haven't, haven't poured very much into evangelism during that time, so I'm reading this I'm thinking, you know what? What is going on? Are we a church that is caught up in self-preservation? Are we a church that is so consumed with just trying to stay alive that we're not really fulfilling the mission of the church? The only excuse I have is there had been things neglected so long that if you don't keep the home fires burning, you can't send any fires anyplace else. We had some home maintenance we had to do it was, in, it was necessary, it was important for us to try and catch up for the lost years. But I, I, I'm telling you, we still have to keep our eye on the mission and the calling of the church. And what, that, what is that? That is still not just to have a nicer building, but it is still to reach the lost, of course, this is this is a part of our whole plan. Is we have a place where we can effectively call it a home church for the next few years, instead of folding it up because the rust corrupts and the moths uh, eat it up. If we have a place, we have a home base from which we can work. But the, the, the casting the vision of the future of Westside still has to be in reaching the lost, yes. bringing them in, challenging our family, challenging our friends taking the gospel message to those who don't know that. We don't want to become so ingrown that we celebrate, here we are, we're still here, we survived last year. (laughs) There's there's no real accomplishment in having survived. Moving forward, now we are making some efforts. Uh, We have have been reaching out to unchurched youth through our youth programs and through our children's programs. Kids that are not normally associated with church, kids that are families that are not normally associated with church, we're still, we still got feelers out there in the community still trying to bring them in. Many of the baptisms we've had for the past several times have been kids that have come in that are getting saved and getting baptized because the adults are too hard-hearted to get saved. Reaching the kids where their minds are still pliable, yeah, I think I'll try that out. Well, let's get them saved. Let's get them baptized. Let's get them dunked. You know, And get them headed to heaven. So we're still reaching. But let's not lose the mission of the church. Right now we're trying to be honest stewards of what God has given us. Let's don't forget the evangelistic arm of the church. The second thing under this church and mission growth Church mission and growth is the issue of church growth. For, I, I've pastored for 39 years now. I can tell you unquestionably, without reservation, I have never in, in my entire life, in my entire ministry, seen so many resources, books, seminars, videos, and consultants promising to teach you the cutting-edge technologies and how to make your church grow. And it just grates on my teeth. I can't stand it because the purpose of the church is not church growth. The purpose of the church is obedience to God in carrying out the Commission to take the word to the world to disciple all nations the purpose of the church is to sow and to water and 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 what is the final what is the final component here who gives the increase God gives the increase And when we leap over all the other stuff and say, now let's strategize. How do we make this church grow? You can get numbers. I can fill this building. I promise you I can fill it. I'll take it out and add this week, we're going to have free beer and strippers next week. (laughs) We'll fill the building. But that's not what the church is supposed to do. We're not looking at growth. We're looking at discipling people. We're looking at growing people, not growing churches. And that's the problem, is we get looking at what does it take to get numbers in here? What does it take to get numbers? It's not what it's about. It's about taking individuals and making them take another step in God to where they make advances in their spiritual life and they're prepared to give a defense of their faith on a one-to-one level. You're the evangelists. The Bible called me to prepare you I'm one of the gifts from God, and I don't mean to sound that my position as a pastor. And he gave some pastors and evangelists and teachers and apostles and prophets to the church for the building of the church, for the perfecting of the saints. I'm trying to equip you to be the evangelist and the light in the darkness where you are. We're instructed to take the good news to those who have never heard it. We're instructed to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit those in prison, care for the fatherless and the widows, pray for the sick, encourage one another, pray and not forsaking the assemblies of ourselves together. That's, That's the responsibilities of the church. But not once are we told to defy his methods to make the church grow. In agricultural terms, we sow, we water, God Is the one that gives the increase and you try to fabricate growth with weird and wild techniques just to draw crowds Jesus never resorted to that he tried to he tried to get away from the crowds and they came because he had something that they wanted the early church and the theology of suffering once again Indulge me as I read what this man's comment is. He said, in an age when many avenues are available to avoid suffering, and therefore many Christians have left out suffering from their understanding of the Christian life, Acts presents a church that took on suffering for the cause of Christ and considered it a basic ingredient of discipleship. We don't like to talk about inconvenient Christianity. We don't like to talk about suffering Christianity. My goodness, no, we like to talk about these positive confessions, pastors, Name it and claim it pastors, divine healing, divine health pastors that want to tell you all you gotta do is just write your own meal ticket and God'll meet you there and you don't have to live in poverty and you don't have to have any sicknesses. And if you do, you probably got sin in your life and all this nonsense. People flock to that because they want a religion that without a reproach, they want a, a, a crown, without a cross, they don't want to suffer. And the early church did not have that concept whatsoever about what it meant for them to be Christians. They knew being a Christian would cost them something. And the modern day church is by and large missing that dynamic. The American church has not historically been a suffering church. We've been a coddled church. We have historically had the favor of the government. We've had the favor of social institutions. How many of you know Hollywood used to hire consultants from the church to help them have guidelines for what they produced and put on TV? How many of you are aware they quit doing that? They don't care what the church thinks anymore. But they used to. They used to look for the church, give us some guidance so it doesn't become immoral and offensive. And people were giving input into what came out of Hollywood. We lost that a long time ago. The position and the opinion of the church at one time mattered in our country. Biblical principles were woven into our founding documents. The existence and sovereignty uh, of God was automatically considered a given whenever they established this nation. Christianity was freely mixed with government and many different levels. Scriptures were embossed on the buildings and the structures in Washington, D.C. Prayer was welcomed and valued to open the sessions of Congress. National Day of Prayer was instituted to acknowledge our need for God's and God's blessing. At one time, schools opened their classes daily with the Pledge of Allegiance and with prayer. And the church was ex- respected and accepted by all. How many of you went to school where they opened the day with prayer? Can I see your hands? Would you look around, people? Would you look around? It really happened in America one time. And I don't mean in Christian schools. I mean in the public school. But the point is, we've had a soft existence as a church. We've had the favor of the nation, of the country, of the institutions. The early church didn't know anything about that. They knew suffering. They knew hardship. They knew difficulty. And they knew in trying to plant the church they were going to meet resistance. The government didn't even recognize them as a legitimate religion. They were just an offshoot of Judaism is the only reason the government tolerated them. Because you had to be government approved in that day to have a religion. that that Rome would not harass you. So being a part of Judaism and springing off the Roman government government didn't know what to make of these Jews who had a slightly different doctrine. They just considered it was a, a, a sect of Judaism. They left them alone. When it became Christianity was not the same as Judaism, Christianity came under persecution from the Roman government. And, of course, we're all aware of Nero lighting up Christians, dipping them in, in animal fat and oil, and using them as human torches. We know the Christians being fed to the lions. We know the price that was paid because they did not have the favor of the government. They was an uphill battle just to exist. Now in the last past 20 years in the United States, and we've reflected back on those years whenever Christianity was looked upon faithfully, the past 20 years have changed everything dramatically. Not only has the church lost its favor in the United States, there's this rapidly growing public sentiment against Christianity and the church. Those who hold Christian values are mocked and derided as bigoted and intolerant. We're entering into an era in which persecution against Christians and Christianity has begun in the U.S. We don't know how bad it'll get. But if hell can successfully push its agenda, it'll get much worse than it is now. Christians will not only be persecuted, they'll be prosecuted. They'll be arrested for holding their biblical convictions. And let me just give you an example. I read recently about a Supreme Court of British Columbia. They ruled that a father was guilty of family violence. No, he didn't beat his kids. He was guilty of family violence. You know why? because he referred to his transgendering daughter by her biological gender. She wanted to be called a male and a he, and he refused, and he called her a her. And they took him to court, and the court said, you are guilty of family violence for refusing to participate in her make-believe world. And next time you do it, He would be subjected to arrest without warrant if any police officer has any reason to believe he's referred to his daughter as a girl in private or in public setting. Now, we think that's tragic, but we've been coddled. The early church thought stuff like, pressure like that was normal. Of course, I'm sure they didn't have the transgendering issue, but just pressure for being arrested for your faith. They said, what? What's the big deal? That's the way it is. We're not, we're not used to that. Well, You better get used to it. You better realize that the legitimate church of God today had better be prepared to face persecution. It's not unusual. It's not out of the norm for the historical church. As much as I hate to lose the cultural and societal favor of the church that I have enjoyed, I have to tell you, at the same time, the comfort and the ease that we have enjoyed has done nothing to strengthen the modern-day church. We've become soft. We've become lax. we become complacent. We've become flabby. Instead of expecting persecution and resistance and hardening ourselves for the task, we dread the opposition that is mounting against us. This might spell the end for Christianity. No, I want to tell you something. The church has grown more during times of persecution than it ever did through times of ease. So if the devil thinks he's going to mount a war against the church and against Christianity here in the United States of America and he's going to put a stop to it, I just tell him, bring it on. In this day and age, this is especially true. If you're not making somebody angry because of what you believe, you're probably not publicly living out your faith and standing by your biblical principles or you're surrounded by a lot of like-minded people. Because if you're living out your faith in the world for others to see, you're going to run into somebody you offend. That may have not been true here in the United States in the years gone by, but it's very real today. I'm just questioning as my final question, my final part, are you ready to be a part of the persecuted church? Or are you going to compromise your faith just to keep the peace? Worship team, come.